media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 12. Again, I'm kind of excited that I'm not preaching about uh, something that's really controversial this morning. Not because I mind that, but simply because it it is one of those things that's hard to wrap up in uh, 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, uh, Some really deep things that we've been studying in the last couple weeks that Jesus covers this last week of his life. Uh, Today is, uh, you could even use the word more palatable uh, for us than the last two. And I don't say that in a, in a means of that palatable is something desirable in the sense that, uh, uh, oh, easy. No, just something that we really do begin to understand and something that we can uh, very much set our minds and our hearts to. Uh, to pick it up kind of in a historical context to give us the full context of this passage, uh, the day is still Tuesday, we believe, is of the Passion Week, just days before the crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, in this passage, we find uh, some of the last teachings of Jesus in his public ministry. And if you recall, over the last many weeks, several groups have come, uh, religious groups have come, and they have questioned Jesus, not with the uh, desire to know more information, but with the desire to try to trip him up. Uh, they are on a one-track mind, and that is to get rid of this one who calls himself the Son of God the Messiah of the world. And so they have this this objective and they come with a one, two, three kind of punch. We see one more coming. Finally, this scribe comes and uh, out of the crowd. And from Mark's gospel, it seems like he comes with a very genuine question. If we read Matthew's account, and that's why it's really good to let Scripture interpret Scripture, to, to look at the para, uh, you know all the gospels together, we see that there is kind of a, a little bit of a sting a little bit of aggression that he has, that he does want to test, as Matthew says, Jesus. You don't pick that out of Mark's, and you really aren't going to pick that out of the response that he gets from Jesus because it seems like he has an understanding and a heart change even in this conversation. But he comes, and and the scribes were the part of the Pharisees. This is really important for us to understand the full context of this passage. The scribes were that part of the Pharisees that gave attention to law and to the specific nature of the law. It would be very similar to our modern-day lawyers that that only had um, the education to understand the laws, but then carried out the laws. And so a scribe in those days was Pharisee. They were very much the religious elite, uh, kind of the in charge of kind of keeping order. But the scribes had even that deeper part of, okay, uh, almost like a parliamentarian. Anybody know what a parliamentarian is? If you've ever been, they, they say, okay, here's how you interpret this. And so they had a very, very important part. Now, that's really kind of uh, essential to understand how deep the question is that he has and to give it the full context. Uh, being a person who had the duty to notice words and the importance of words and the application of words. That's what a scribe was. And so he comes and he asks this question. Look at Matthew 12, 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, that is Jesus and all these religious leaders, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? 
Now, here's a man whose job is, both religiously and, and kind of the, the role that he plays is interpretation of the law. Interpretation of what is right and correct. And so he comes with a question that I think is intriguing to all of us, and that is, you know, if you take all these commandments, and they have the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, but by this time, very much, uh, the Pharisees and, and others had added to that. In the Old Testament, we have a gathering of 613 laws. So there's a bunch of laws. And, and then there's some unwritten ones of, of people's judgment and their understanding that they've kind of added to that. And, and so there, it's a very logical question in one way. I think it's a very practical question in one way. And that is, out of all these laws, the Ten Commandments and, and these 613 laws, which one is the most important? Now, that makes sense to us. Because in our minds, we, we want to make sure that we don't do the big ones. Does that make sense to you? Now, the Bible would say that they're all the big ones. Okay? Not so much the 613, unless they were, truly were given from God. Not the ones that were made up from man, but the ones that God has given us. And yet, there is something so deep within us that we just want to make sure that we don't really mess up. And, and we kind of want, okay, if I can stay over here in the safe ones, you know, everybody's kind of mess up from time to time. I just don't want to really mess up. Can you relate to that in your own mind? That somehow, even if you knew theologically different, that every one of the commandments had equal um, weight, that sin is sin, and God doesn't kind of look at one sin in one way worse than another sin, that every sin is a disobedience to a holy God. And yet, would you admit, at least, that there's a part of your thinking that really does want one to ten? One, this is the most important. Ten, this is the one we can let slide a little bit. See, that's very much our thinking. Why? Because we really like kind of uh, we're much more religious than we would give ourselves credit for. Uh, when we think of right and wrong, we want an order so that we can stay away from the bad ones. So in some sense, we, we really are kind of authentic. I just, you know, it's so much that I, I don't want to tick off God. I just don't really want to tick him off. So we have this religious nature. I mean, how many, uh, just to kind of to, to prove that before, how many of you have ever thought, or said outside, well, I'm not perfect, but at least I haven't killed somebody? <laughs> have you ever thought that, or at least kind of, you know, something like that? In other words, what we've said, okay, I know I'm not perfect, I know that I have sin, but I haven't committed this sin. So somehow, murder, and, and I would guarantee you that the outcome of murder, is, they're all sin, but they're... Uh, you know, the ramifications of murder is going to be a little bit more than, you know, if I told a little lie. Oh, do you like my dress? Yes, <laughs> I like the dress. You know, that both could be sinful if they're breaking God's law, but one certainly has a magnification of results with it. And so this is where we get that understanding. And this is a definite part of our spiritual thought process that we take to the Ten Commandments. Uh, that talk about this love for God, and we want him to order it in degrees, okay, right or wrong. What is this called? It's called religion. And we are attracted to religion. Religion is beliefs, rules, and regulations that direct us in the way that we should live, to guide us. So a quick question this morning. Is Christianity a religion? 
Is Christianity a religion? I don't see anybody really giving it a real affirming, not that I ask for a real affirming yes or no, but, you know, as you ponder that, is it a religion? Let me give you my interpretation or what my answer would be that, yes, it is. It is a system of beliefs, rules, and regulations, but not in the primary way that we think. Its basis is not religion. The fact that we have a way of uh, a word of God and a direction to live our lives, by that it could fit the definition that it is a religion. It is a way of thinking. It is a way of living our lives out. Is that the basis of Christianity? No. I think that many of us have heard that, that the basis of Christianity is relationship, not religion. And I think that we kind of know that in a mind kind of way, I don't know that we really grasp that on a day-by-day, Monday-through-Sunday kind of basis. I think that, again, this nectar of religion, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, of why is that so attractive to us? Why do we, as people who know that it's all about relationship with a holy God that's been enabled by the finished work of Christ, why are we still kind of drawn to the religious part of Christianity? Rules and regulations, and, okay, is this really, really bad, or is this as bad as this one? We have that part of us. Yes, we do. (laughs) We really do. We really do. And so what do we do? To understand that in this dilemma is really to understand the heart of Jesus' answer. Look at verse 29 and 30. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In one fell swoop, Jesus took all the religious complexity of the day and he brought it back, not to just to the simplicity of one rule, but to relationship. I mean, this isn't just Christianity for dummies. This isn't religious life for dummies. Understanding the law for dummies. This isn't just the simplicity. It does make it quite simple. I'm so glad that Jesus gave this response, which actually we find several times in the Old Testament. It's not that he's saying something brand new. What he does is he brings us back to the basis of our relationship with God. Now again, please don't tune this out this morning, okay? Because I know that many, many of you have a full understanding. Hey, is is Christianity more about religion or more about relationship? I would suppose that every single one of us know the answer to that. But I still think that there's a draw to this religious side of us. And so to understand the fullness of what Jesus is saying, so that we don't fall into that same trap, so that we have this full appreciation of this relationship, let's kind of dissect what Jesus is saying. He follows up in verse 31, and the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, why did he add that? Because if it's all about relationship and us having a right relationship with God, Jesus says it is a natural order then that as we would have right relationship with he, holy God, that we would then have a care for our fellow man, that we would have a right relationship with others. That this is the fruit of having right relationship with a holy God. And he ties the two together, not because he wants to add more regulations. He doesn't start his whole list of 613. What he does is, look, this 
fulfills everything. Your right relationship with the one that created you, and then your response to those now that you exist with. Please don't miss the importance of this. Jesus' aim was not specifically just to shorten the list. I think sometimes, I mean, I, I like simplicity. I, I mean, I like simplicity over complexity. But that really wasn't the basis for him doing that. He wasn't just saying, hey, that's much easier to remember, two instead of 613. It's helpful, it's practical, but the basis was that he wanted to show us the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to point us to Christ. To show us our great need. Remember last week we talked about how one of the things that kind of bothers us when we read that uh, Jesus says that there won't be marriage in heaven as far as that, that establishment. There will still be relationships. I still firmly believe I will know Carly, my kids, my grandkids, and so on. So we will be known as we're known. So it's not that all of a sudden we're just going to become these drone people that just don't have any identity. No, we'll have that. But right now, we are needy people. And I asked you that last week. Would you admit that you're a needy person? And I ask you that again this morning because it is one of the most important realizations about the truth of man. Would you admit today, not because the pastor is forcing you to, would you admit today that you are a needy person? Out of that admitting, out of that truth-telling of our lives, we begin to understand the beauty of the gospel that much more, that yes, I am a needy person. And that's why I need this and this. And I'm not talking about just, okay, we need a comfortable house and this. Certainly we have that persuasion. But I'm talking about we're just the needy people of relationship and, and love and acceptance and all these different things. And this is what God has given us through Jesus Christ. The law showed us how to live, and it does that. I will never argue with somebody who says, well, the law shows us how to correctly live. And Christ would say that. But he said it, the law really served a greater purpose. And what was that greater purpose? Well, we, we find in the New Testament several places, but one of those places that says it just really succinctly and accurately to me, uh, or most accurately as far as just getting right to it, Romans 7, 7. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Romans. What then shall we say? And really, I hate to take this verse because you read all of chapter 7 when you get home and you'll get the whole context of this conversation. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. I'm not saying that the law is wrong because he's making this argument how the law could not save us. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Had God not said there's rights and there's wrongs, there's correct ways to do things and wrong ways to do things. Thou shalt do these things, thou shalt not do these things. And and Paul says, God says, without the law you would not have been aware of your sin. Now look at the last part of that. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. He just takes an example. How did I even know that that was right or wrong? So the law's purpose, its primary purpose, is to show us that we are a needy people. That out of our rebellion, that we needed a Savior. That's what Paul continues on, and I won't go through the whole list, but you can look up Galatians 3.24. It says that the law was our guardian, our tutor, until Christ came. 
And we see this constant kind of reflection in the New Testament pointing us back that the law is not bad, that the law is of God, but it could never meet the need that we had. Why? Because we are a rebellious, sinful people. It's really hard for us. I mean, we can think theologically like this, but isn't it really, really hard for us? Let's just admit it that if we only did one sin our entire lifetime, let's say that you live to be the grand age of a 100, and you only did one sin the entire time, and it wasn't even what you considered a big sin. I didn't murder anybody. Would you somewhere in your mind think, you know, man, compared to everybody else, certainly I should get heaven. Is there a part of you that kind of thinks that way. And yet that would be wrong theologically, that even one sin would separate us from a holy God. See, that's how estranged we are from really kind of grasping this because we we really do kind of get in this whole misunderstanding of the law. And so Paul says, God says through Paul, uh, Galatians 3.24, that the, the, the law was the guardian, the tutor, until uh, the time of Christ when he came to redeem man. And yet we're still attracted to it today. I've shared this before, but I think it's worth repeating because uh, even if you've been here before and you know these three things, I I want you to fully understand and grasp uh, what I believe is the attraction, what I would call the nectar of religion. Three things, easy to remember. Because we can measure it. Because we can try to master it. And if not, we can manipulate it. And you could probably take those first two and you could interchange those. Why is there a nectar to religion, to, to looking at the laws and our obedience and our ability to do that? Number one, if you notice that the common thing is we. <laughs> it puts all the emphasis on us and our ability. But by measuring, what do we mean? Okay, we, right and wrong. And at the end of the day, if I've done three things wrong and you've done 33 things wrong, somewhere in my mind I'm going, I'm better than you. I'm more deserving of God's blessing and relationship with him because I've done less sin. And so we have this measurable part of it. We can even try and attempt to master it. Jesus is talking to the scribes, the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, and they were ones that tried to master all these 613. And, and I promise you guys, their hearts were dark and their hearts were, were at times, I mean, many times very, very evil, but they were pretty good at keeping the law. That's why Jesus would say, man, on the outside, you look pretty white as far as clean and pure, and, but, but you're a whitewashed tomb. You don't see that dirtiness. You don't see that darkness. You look like light, but you're, you're not. There's darkness within you. Jesus' answer here does, in fact, simplify 613 laws down to two. In, in one way, would we want to take all those then, if we're measure, people that love to measure, would you like to measure yourself up against the two that Jesus gave us? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your body, your soul, everything that is about you, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Or do you like the ones that say, okay, do this, do this, do this, and all these other ones that kind of spell it out a little bit more? Because all those are kind of concrete, and they kind of affect different things. 
you know, here and there, and we can master some of those. We can, and then we can manipulate them. Well, I didn't really lie. What I did was stretch the truth a little bit. I didn't tell the full truth. Uh, we get in this process of just kind of playing with these things. But why would we stand in our minds and our hearts against the commandments that Jesus just kind of boiled everything down to? Then it's not so much, as I look at those commandments, then it's not so much about right and wrong and religion as it is my relationship to my Holy Father. Do you see that? Love the Lord your God with all your mind, your heart, your body, your soul, everything about you. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, certainly there's a morality about that. We're not trying, I'm not trying to escape that away or turn that away. I'm just saying it's all about relationship. Now it's really gotten down to my relationship with this creator who made me. Look what it says in verse 32. And, 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 uh, well, before we get that, just just real quick, you know, because I, I do want to say, okay, there is a practical appreciation that we should have that God gave these. There was a theological reason that was first and primary. But can we show that, that next slide? How many of you like instructions like this as opposed to that? I mean, if you're putting something together, how many of you want slide number one? So let's not ignore the practical application that Jesus is given. But I want you to know it's not the primary one. He's not just trying to do, okay, let me make it really easy for the less intelligent here or the less committed, the less this. No, he's trying to give us this whole basis of relationship that has been enabled by Christ instead of just following religious rules. At the same time, when he did that, he really did take something that had all these moving parts and he put it back into that first slide. You just, you just love God with all that you are and you love your neighbors yourself? You got every other one right. Is there one of the Ten Commandments that is not covered by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, body, and soul and loving your neighbors yourself? If you did those two things, would you have fulfilled the other Ten Commandments? Yeah. So, so I'm not saying listen, I don't appreciate what Christ did there. I really appreciate, since I'm pretty simple-minded, hey, I like those instructions better than these other instructions. But let's not just leave it there and think that that's the basis of his argument. Look at verse 32 and 33. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. <laughs> Isn't that incredible that people would go around to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are right. Can you imagine you saying that? You're in conversation with Jesus. God, you're right. <laughs> I'm just telling you, you're right, God. You got my stamp of approval. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love one's neighbor as uh, oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why didn't he just stop at, you're right, this is a really two, uh, two really good commands. Why does he throw in the last part? Is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's key to understanding this. Why does he add that on? Burning sacrifices, bringing burnt offerings to God, 
Was that part of the religious, even though it was what God had provided, was it part of religious duty and religious action? Was it based more in, uh, at least by this time, religious action or relationship? Man, they just did it kind of without even thought. Hey, make sure on the way to, to church this morning you pick up that lamb. I mean, can you imagine that conversation going on in your household? I thought you were going to get the lamb. No, I thought you were going to get the lamb. We'll get one on the way to church. I mean, not trying to really be silly, but don't you think that it came to that? I mean, it's obvious that it came to that. I mean, by the time that we're living here, God is not pleased with the sacrifices because it's just become a ritual that they went through. There was not a heart of relationship that it was intended to, 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 to be. See, this whole idea of loving God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, it's in the Old Testament. Again, this was not new. We can find it in Deuteronomy 6.5. We can find it in Joshua 22.5. We can find it in Leviticus. It's there not to, 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 it's there to free us from this trap of religious duty and just kind of following the rules. It's to lead us to the offering of God's gracious gift of life through Jesus Christ. And this trap still exists today. We can still be very much a religious people. So, so we have to be aware of this. Now, notice what Jesus said in reply to this man who really does get it right. He says, look, loving God is more important than, than sacrifices. It almost goes back to that Old Testament uh, verse that says to obey is better than sacrifice. Kind of has that same thought process. Jesus' response, verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, Wisdom, is it more associated with the head or the heart? Okay, you saying the head? I mean heart? I heard some heads. Wisely, it certainly is maybe a combination of the two. I'm, I'm thinking wisdom is more ethereal. I, I mean, just in my... So he, he gets that part. He said, look, you got the correct answer. And he's affirming. He's not trying to, to pick a part. He said, it's the, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Because now that your head has the right answer, let your heart follow this right answer. You got the right answer. You're not far from the kingdom of heaven. This is a miraculous statement to a scribe who knew the X's and O's knew the ones and the zeros of this is right and this is wrong. His whole job is to kind of take the law, take life, and kind of put it into two columns. Do this, don't do that. His whole life, this is what he gets paid for. He's an expert. People come to him and ask, which column does this fit in? And now he comes to a place and he says, you know, if I don't have right relationship with you, God, and if I don't, then in the fruit of that have right relationship, all the burnt sacrifices in the world, all that is not enough. You've answered wisely. You've answered wisely. This isn't about having more good than bad at the end of your life. Jesus points to himself just days before his crucifixion. And Jesus affirms this man's conclusion. He said, now put faith and trust in it. 
Is that not the call of Christ in our lives? Not just to have a mental understanding of truth, but then by faith and trust that we place our lives into it? Here's our application as we close this morning. Two things. Number one, to understand the basis of the law. Its purpose was to show us first and foremost that we are needy people and that we need a Savior. First and foremost, this is the purpose of the law. The second application, though, is to understand that obedience to God's commands become a reaction of this relationship and not religious duty. That that we get this kind of heart here because we have relationship with a God. In order to have relationship with this God, we need to have a new heart. Why? Because we are prone to religious activity that focuses on ourselves. And I know this is a repeat. This is like a a class that you've had a thousand times before for some of you. But for some of you, it may be the first time that you've ever considered that. For others, it's a good kind of reminder of those foundations. My kids, when I was coaching, my kids hated the first two weeks of practice because all we did was fundamentals. We just went back to fundamentals. When are we going to play the game? When are we going to play? When are we going to play? Let's do the fundamentals first. Let's do the fundamentals. And this is fundamental, but it's one of those essential fundamentals. Folks, you will not have, I will not have, we will not have a desire for, a, a real pure desire to do the things that are pleasing to God without a heart that has not been changed by God through Jesus Christ. We will have a heart that wants to do religious duty somehow so that we can measure up correctly or that somehow we can, in our mind, kind of play that, okay, I think I'm good for eternity now. There's a real big difference. I hope that this is not sacrilegious, this illustration, but I think it kind of points us in the right direction. I think there's similarities. There's a big difference between a husband who says, okay, can, can you give me a book of all the rights and wrongs, honey? Because I want to make sure that I do rights and wrongs. I want to do much more right than I do wrong. As opposed to a, a husband who comes to the wife and says, yeah, I love you with everything that I am, my heart, my mind, my body, everything that I, I just love you. And I love our children. The fruit of that love for you is the love for our children. What, what he's saying is, because of my love, because of my, my heart's been changed, I'm not just trying to follow rules how to be a good husband. I just desire right relationship with you because I love you. Do you see the difference there? That the whole motive of obedience is one prompted by relationship, not religion. Well, Pastor, how many times are you going to say that today? Maybe about three more. I, I don't know, but... Guys, we just, we, even as Christians, even as Christians, we can fall into that trap. It's a nectar. Religion has a nectar. It's, it sounds sweet. It smells sweet. It looks sweet. Why? Because it puts focus on our ability, but it is empty and it is powerless. And that's why we need it, Christ. And when we understand the beauty of the gospel, 
And how Christ, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When we understand that, this motivation of relationship that was established through the work of Christ and through the blood of Christ, then we all of a sudden, obedience is not something that we do so that we can be right. So that we can be loving and pleasing. I don't need Carly to get, well, sometimes I do need Carly to give me a hint of, okay, what am I supposed to do now? (laughs) But I would hope that my love for her would motivate me not to have a set of five rules to follow. I don't have to go to my wife and say, am I allowed to date anymore? You know, I don't have to see what's right and wrong. No, my love for her compels me at that point to love her and be in relationship with her. Does that make sense? And again, any illustration that we ever try to give of earthly things in comparison to the, the, the holiness of God is always going to fall apart. It's like trying to explain the Trinity. We're never going to quite be able to do it, okay? But do you at least get the concept there of a relationship brings out pure motives of obedience? Religion does not do that. Religion prompts eyes to go back on us and our own performance. Jesus gave us a gift here. He took very compliance, 613 laws, put it down to two, but more than that, he showed us the importance of the law and what he was about to do just days later by giving sacrifice, making us right with the Holy God and giving us a new heart so that now we could live not as legalistic Christians, forming rituals, but that we could just live in relationship with the Holy God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Father, I pray that I've uh, somehow explained this in a way that of, of your purpose, Father. It is so much more than just what we see there, Father. It's not just a simplification of 613 laws down to two. It is that, and we thank you for that because we like easy instructions, Father, we thank you that what's behind this, the foundation of this, is that you're taking this away from our desire and our thirst for religion. And Father, you're putting us back into a, a place where your focus is relationship. So Father, we thank you today for the simplification of 613 laws down to two. But Father, we thank you this morning for the blood of Jesus Christ that just days from this conversation, Father, he would redeem us and allow us to have relationship with you, a holy God, so that we could live our lives out, not in a measure of rights and wrongs, but in a measure of loving you and the fruit of that, loving others. Father, help us to grasp that even this morning as we thank you now in song and thank you for the blood of Christ. We love you, Father. We pray this in the hope that is him, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.